0: him down. He ended up in hospital. She went ahead and voted, and they eventually got a divorce. Quite the overreaction, huh? Now, if you felt as we read Numbers 20, or maybe you did it in community groups this week, that maybe the Lord God overreacted a little bit you wouldn't be the only one. I mean, is that how you felt as you read this? I mean, what did Moses do that was so bad as to disqualify him? Remember who Moses is, the man of God, the prophet, the leader, the friend of God. Disqualify him from entering into the promised land. What did he do? I mean, did God majorly overreact? Now, today we're going to look at this in a little bit more detail. Now, just a little bit of hint when you come to parts of the bible that you struggle or wrestle with or puzzling parts of the bible it's always worth going a little bit deeper look a little bit closer because those questions are good and when you look closer with those objections and questions that's often when you mine gold and that's what we're going to do see on the surface god does seem like he overreacted but i reckon if we look closer and 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 discover a little bit deeper that we'll actually see That it wasn't an overreaction. Now, if that's the case, then maybe, if God didn't overreact, maybe, just maybe, there is some aspect of God that we didn't see clearly before. That hopefully at the end we will see clearly. Maybe it's something that Moses didn't even see clearly about God and that he needed to realize. And I'll just give you a preview where we're going to end up is that's exactly what happened. This aspect of God that we will discover at the end of this chapter is something that we actually today, as God's people, get wrong a lot. So it's going to be really important that we keep digging and we keep asking. So I'm going to pray and ask us to uh, ask God to help us and help me, especially with my fluy snottiness, to get through today and uh, get as much out of this chapter as we can. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that even uh, as I struggle to speak, that you would be speaking through me and my sickness and weakness, that people might be hearing you and be changed by you. Do your work, Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. If you haven't been with us, uh, we've been going through the book of Numbers, and it's a great idea to catch up, especially with the first sermon. Um, It's all online. But Numbers is really the story uh, from the end of the book of Exodus as God's people come out of slavery in Egypt, and they're journeying from where God gave them the law and officially made them His people at Mount Sinai, journeying from Sinai which is at the end of Exodus, to Canaan, which is the land that God promised them. Now, we saw a couple of weeks ago that the turning point to the whole book was back in chapters, Numbers chapters 13 and 14. Because there, as they got right to the border of the promised land we're about to enter, we saw they fail dismally, big time. They fail to trust God. And the punishment that God had for them was that 40 years, they would be wandering in the desert. They wouldn't go in because they failed to trust God to get them in. So they'd be wandering in the desert until that whole first generation that came out of Egypt all died, bar two people, right? Forty years would pass before they had another shot at it. Now, Numbers chapter 20, verse 1, it tells us it's the first month. It's a bit vague, first month of what? But actually, what it is is the first month of The new generation. Forty years has passed. Right? We fast forwarded 40 years pretty quickly between last chapter and this chapter. Forty years has passed. And they are at the place which is called Kadesh, which we know is at the edge of the promised land. So they're back where they were 40 years ago. Back where they went in to scout the land. Back where they failed the first time. But now the new generation is here. And it's 40 years later. Now this chapter is a bit like the um, Avengers Infinity War chapter of numbers because it starts sad it ends sad and it's sad in the middle and pretty much everyone dies so the chapter oh sorry did i just give it away you knew that everyone was gonna die well actually half but anyway let's not go there um the chapter begins with miriam's death miriam is moses's sister and the most prominent female leader It's going to end with Aaron's death, Moses' brother and the great high priest. And here in the middle, Moses will be doomed not to enter the land. It pretty much is the Infinity War chapter, isn't it? Pretty depressing. Everyone, you see, of the Exodus generation, minus two people, Joshua and Caleb, they will all die, as God said. And here's the sad thing, including these three leaders. So let's go. If you want to follow on your outlines, I've got three points. I'm up to point one. Um, now we read earlier this chapter. Kerry read for us. It appears to be one of many, 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 many grumbling stories in the desert because we've had so many in numbers. Right now, you remember uh, in the second sermon of the series, we started with chapter eleven. If you have a quick flipper, look at chapter eleven. Uh, chapter eleven verses one to three is that there's the pattern of the grumbling. Remember the first sermon of numbers, everything is good in chapters one to ten. First bad turning point, chapter eleven. And the first three verses really sets the pattern there. We won't read it, but if you scan it, you'll see that what's going to happen is Israel will complain or grumble, and then God will get angry and then punish them. And then Moses will intercede, speak on their behalf, and then God will turn back the punishment, and then the place will get a name, okay, that they grumbled at. That's basically the pattern of the grumbling. And we've seen that pattern repeated again and again. So in chapter 11, they grumbled about manna. In uh, chapter 13 and 14, the big chapters, they grumbled about going into the land. Uh, Last week with Dom, you heard, they grumbled about the priests and the leaders, all right? And now they're grumbling about what? Water. They haven't got water. And as we read earlier, this grumbling leads to near mutiny. And like in chapter 16, Moses and Aaron, at the the, the report of the mutiny, well, they come into God's physical presence— they go to the tent of meeting where God chose to dwell among the camp, and they're face down, right? They're expecting something big's going to happen, and then God responds. And his response is he gives Moses instructions about how to perform a water miracle. And Moses was to take the staff, which was the staff he used to perform miracles in Egypt. He was to go before the people. He was to speak to the rock, and the water would miraculously come out. That's what God tells Moses to do. And we read that Moses begins to do that, but instead of following God's instructions to speak to the rock, well, he instead loses his temper, it sounds like, he speaks to the people instead, and then he strikes the rock twice with the staff. Now, the water still comes out miraculously, but that's where God is unhappy. And the consequence at the end of the chapter is that Moses comes under judgment and is barred From entering the land himself. Okay. So once again we gotta ask the question. Yes, what he did wasn't following God's instructions, it was bad, but did God overreact? Don't you feel sorry for Moses? You might be feeling even more sorry for Moses when I show you what happened 40 years ago in Exodus. Let me read it out, just follow. It's a bit of a long passage, but it's really worth reading because it's the background to this. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Raphidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered Moses, go out in front of the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? Okay, that's interesting, isn't it? In fact, it's so similar that some scholars think that it's actually the same incident. But it's not because it's a different time, a different location. Uh, even though one of the places get the same name, Meribah, it's still different. seems like there were two Meribahs. And Exodus 17 happens near Mount Sinai. He actually strikes the rock at Horeb, which is the mountain. Numbers 20, we know, is nowhere near that. It's at the edge of the promise at Kadesh. Also, the details are different. But the reason why I want to show you is because on the surface, Exodus 17 might make you feel even more sorry for Moses, right? Because look what he was told to do to the rock in Exodus 17. He was told to strike the rock. I mean, so yeah, maybe in Numbers 20, he lost his temper and didn't follow God's exact instructions, but striking the rock had precedence, didn't it? Now, maybe he was like, it was muscle memory, just automatically did it. Why did God judge him so harshly because of it? They're good questions, aren't they? Now, maybe it is a lesson about God's holiness, that God in His holiness doesn't tolerate sin But God seems to tolerate the people's complaints and their grumbling. He he doesn't judge them. I mean, arguably, that was the biggest sin, right? Or maybe this is a, a lesson about leaders and God expecting more from His leaders. The more you're given, the more is expected. Moses was closest to God, given most responsibility, God revealed most to Moses, and maybe that's why he had the harsher punishment. Now, certainly that's a theme in the Bible. The New Testament book of James said that leaders or teachers will be judged more strictly. But is that all there is to it? We're going to go to point number two now, because we're going to look carefully at the details and see if we can answer the question, did God overreact? Now, the key to Moses' Doing the wrong thing is in verse 12. So back to Numbers 20, look at verse 12. God says, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. You got the two key things that Moses did wrong. It was firstly a heart thing, and then secondly, a holiness thing. Okay? Firstly, he lacked trust. He didn't trust. That's a heart problem. He didn't trust in God enough to then honor God's holiness. That's the second thing, God's holiness, heart and holiness, or trust and holiness. So we got to ask the question, looking carefully at what Moses did, in what, sorry, in what ways did Moses' actions show up a very serious and deep heart attitude? A heart attitude that didn't trust God. Now you got to keep in mind, back in chapters 13 and 14, not trusting in God was the reason... The Israelites as a whole rebelled against him and couldn't enter into the land themselves. Not trusting in God is a serious thing when it reflects an attitude of the heart. So in what way does Moses' actions show that his heart of hearts didn't trust God? That's the first thing. And then the other thing we're looking for is in what ways did Moses' actions fail to uphold God's holiness, right? His holiness. If we can answer those questions, I think we're going to get to the bottom of it. Now, we're going to look at the details by firstly remembering the context. Remember, who are the Israelites, the people, or the assembly in Numbers 20? They are not the generation that came out of Egypt, remember? The generation that were under judgment from 13, chapters 13 and 14. But they are the new generation. Forty years have passed. This is the new generation that God has promised would Enter into the land, they're the next generation now. uh, Numbers up to now really has been a if you guys imagine a graph, it's been spiraling downwards or going downwards. Now, numbers 20, as I said, is a bit of the Infinity War chapter, it's pretty depressing. But from 20 onwards, it's actually going to start looking up from here. Numbers will end up with right at the end, them successfully going almost ready to conquer the land. So it's going to start going up. That's the context. New generation it's looking up. But also, more importantly, look how this complaint story breaks the pattern. Remember I said in chapter 11, 1 to 3, there is a pattern set up for all the grumbling stories. The pattern is they complain, God judges, Moses intercedes, and then God's judgment is turned away. Notice this, the pattern isn't followed, is it? They complain, but... It doesn't lead to God's judgment, does it? God makes no comment about their grumbling or complaining. He doesn't punish them for it. In fact, what it leads to is God providing graciously water for them. There's no punishment. There's not even anger that they're complaining. And if you look at Exodus 17, you'll notice that it's the same pattern. As Numbers 20. There's a complaint. In fact, Moses fears for his life, but no judgment, no anger, no punishment from God. Neither the first generation nor the second generation were punished for their complaint. Which leads us to think more carefully about Moses. You see, God doesn't judge. God's not even angry here. But what about Moses? Let's look again at verse 7. Numbers 20, verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so that they and their livestock can drink. Verse 9, so Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock. And Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Just to check you're awake. Water gushed out and the, water, and the community and their livestock drank. You see, Moses is angry. Moses is furious. Moses acts and speaks in a way he feels the people deserve to be spoken to, which is very out of character for him. See, up to now, every time the people rebel and threaten Moses' leadership, even directly to him, He has seen that the rebellion isn't actually against him. He's not taking it personally. He's always seen that it's actually against God. And so every single time it's happened, he humbly and meekly trusts in God to set things right, to vindicate his leadership. But not this time, you see. Moses speaks as though their offense was against who? Him. And it's now up to he and Aaron to fix things up. And You notice his words. He says, must we bring you water out of this rock? Uh, That that verb, bring out, is a very important verb. In verse 5, Israel say to Moses, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Again, bring out. That's the verb, bring out, the verb that always is used when it's speaking about what God has done for His people. It's what God does. He brings them out of egypt he brings them water out of the rock not moses but you see moses he now puts himself in the place of god he's now the subject the doer of the verb the bringing out must we bring water out of the rock like we brought you out of egypt but it wasn't him who did it right and then there's the other thing here's our action of us striking the rock it's not just a momentary lapse, or as I called it, muscle memory. Right, it's not just out of frustration. You know, Moses punching a pillow, but a rock instead. Um, the word strike isn't, isn't just tap. And it's not just hit. It's actually a word used for pretty violent action. And he does it twice, by the way. In, um, in Hebrew, which is where the Old Testament is written in, Hebrew language uh, will uh, emphasize things using repetition. So, if I want to say it's really dark, I will say it's dark darkness. If I want to say it's really holy, I'll say it's holy holiness, all right? So, something that happens twice is not just an accident, but it's deliberate, it's emphatic, it's violent. And that verb strike, by the way, is most often used in the Bible as God's actions of judgment against His enemies. It's used in Exodus of what God did to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, in the plagues. He struck them. Older translation will have the word smite. We should bring back that word. It's a good word, smite. He smote them. Now, put it all together. What was going on in Moses' heart as his actions reveal it? It's anger, isn't it? But not just anger. Moses was angry in the way that he thought God should have been angry. That's the key. He was so angry, he wanted to step into God's role of meeting out, smiting judgment. Even though he knew from Exodus 17 that God wasn't going to judge his people for this kind of complaint. He didn't judge them then, he's not going to judge them now. And you see, that's the problem. Moses, who is so much like us so flawed like us. He got proud. He failed to let God be God. He wanted to take matters into his own hands. He put himself in God's place, and in so doing, he failed to honor God as holy. That's the second thing. So, let's think more about holiness. Uh, The word holy literally means to set apart or, or someone who's different or distinct. Now, God being holy means that God is different. He's distinct. He's not like us or anything else He's created. Now, we usually associate God's holiness with His purity and therefore His judgment, don't we? And that's right and good because that's often how the Bible speaks of His holiness. But it's not always the case here and elsewhere that God's holiness is just about His holiness against sin. Have a look at Exodus 34, verse 6. The word holiness isn't used, but you see what God is revealing Himself as. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Do you see, God is also holy, that is, Unlike us, distinct, set apart from us in his mercy. In how patient he is. In how kind he is. Where Moses wanted to judge, where Moses might lose patience, and I think we sympathize with Moses because we would too. Well, God is different, you see. God is holy. He's not like us, he's not like Moses. God is slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. You see, what should Moses have done if he had trusted? And if he had upheld God's holiness, he would have trusted God to show mercy. He would have trusted God to be patient with these rebels. He would have trusted God to be God. And because he failed to trust God and instead put himself in the place of God, thinking that it was all up to him now to lead God's people, well, God's punishment sort of is fitting the crime, isn't it? He's going to take that leadership away. That's why Moses will fail to lead the people into the land. So let's think about this one. We actually sang it in the first hymn, I just noticed. right? Holy, holy, holy. What's the next line? Merciful and mighty. Great hymn. Nice choice, team. God is holy because He is merciful. God is holy in His mercy, which means if you're a child of God, you do not uphold His holiness when we are angry and bitter and unforgiving. You see that? We don't reflect God. We're not like Him in that. When we are bitter and angry and unforgiving, when we condemn rather than love, when we exclude rather than embrace, when we are embittered rather than forgive, we fail to uphold God's holiness. The irony is some people think that by upholding God's holiness, it's actually that. You guys heard of Westboro Baptist in the U.S., famous for picketing um, soldiers' funerals, signs saying, you're going to hell, God hates you not blessed, just cursed, and they're just some of the nicer signs. They really think that they are acting on behalf of God's holiness, and they could not be more wrong, could they? They misread what God's stance is towards sinners. They think it's about God hating sinners. But it's not that. God is different to Westboro. He's different to us. Now, I'm not saying that God... Tolerates evil. No, we're not saying that at all. And that God's holiness isn't shown in purity and judgment. The day of judgment is coming. Right? The Bible speaks of that. Jesus spoke of the day of judgment, and he, of all people, speaks of the reality of hell. But the key to ask ourselves now is what is the time right now? What period in history are we in now? What is God's stance towards sinners and rebels now? that's the important question. I'm up to my final point. And to answer that, you know the famous ver- uh, verse of the Bible, John 3, 16 and 17, don't you? For God so loved the world. What is His stance towards the world now? He so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. And notice this next verse. Why did God send Jesus? He didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world. But to save the world through Him. What is God's stance towards sinful and rebellious people right now? Does Westboro Baptist have it right? Or did Jesus' own disciples have it right? Do you you remember in Luke chapter 9, um, they don't get welcomed by the Samaritans. So Jesus' disciples say, Lord, shall we call down fire from heaven and blast these guys out of the, and Jesus rebukes them? Or at Jesus' arrest, His chief disciple Simon Peter grabs a sword and cuts off the servant's ear? Do they have a right? Is that what Jesus came to do? No. God sent His Son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save. When when John 3.16 says, God so loved the world, God's love, it's not saying God's love is so big because the world is so big and there's so many people in it. It's true. But that's not John's point. God's love is so big, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. Because every time the word world is used in John, it's about the world that's turned its back on God. God so loved that world. That's why His love is so big, because the world is so bad. And yet God is what? Compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And so did Jesus take up sword or call down fire from heaven or curse and condemn? No. Quite the opposite, isn't it? Rather than strike others, Jesus allowed himself to be struck. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, don't turn to it, it says that Jesus is the rock from which we drink. I'm not really sure how that works. But that's a really interesting comparison. Jesus is the rock from which God's water, living water flows. The rock referred to in Numbers 20 and Exodus 17, the rock that miraculously gives water, is actually about Jesus somehow. But you put it all together, it means this, that on the cross, Jesus allowed himself to be struck. He didn't strike like Moses did. He gets struck and smitten, smote, whatever the word is. And he gets pierced in in the Gospel of John with his spear. And you remember in the Gospel of John, when he's pierced with his spear, what flows out of his side? Blood and water. Jesus is the rock from which living water flows. And God tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that now is the day of salvation. You want to know what time it is? Before Jesus comes back in judgment, now is not a day of condemnation. It's a day of salvation until he comes to judge god stance towards a world in rebellion against him is like the father in jesus's parable of the lost sons you know the father who is out there waiting and he's watching and he's yearning and he's inviting and he's loving he just wants his son to come back to him he doesn't want anyone to perish god is holy in His mercy. And maybe that's the good news you need to trust in for yourself today, whether you are a Christian or not. Do you need to rehear and re-trust that news for yourself that God isn't like anyone you know, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've walked away from Him, no matter how many times you've sinned and rejected Him so far, now is still the day of salvation. It still is. And He wants you back. You don't have to be afraid to come to His arms. Because Jesus is your guarantee that God's face is always going to be turned towards you in love and not anger. Is this something you need to believe for yourself today? Or maybe this is good news you need to believe for someone else. Because you might have given up on them. You might have even stopped really praying for them expectantly. You've distanced yourself. You've withdrawn a little. Maybe you've come to believe that they're too far gone. They could never turn back. Well, now is still the day of salvation. And God is unlike you and unlike me. He is still patient. He is still inviting. And He wants to use you and me. Not as instruments of anger and judgment like Moses wanted to be that day. No, no, no. He wants to use you and me as instruments of mercy and grace. So don't you give up on them. You hear? Keep praying. Keep loving. Keep speaking hope to them. Keep speaking the good news of Jesus to them. Keep inviting. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that as we had a new glimpse of your holy mercy and holy love, that we would hold out to ourselves and the world this incredible good news that today is the day of salvation. Today we can turn to you. Today people can be saved. Oh, how we long that today people would be saved in our midst. And no matter what people have done, no matter how far we think they've gone, may we not give up on them because you have still set apart this day as a day of salvation. Amen.